Hey, um, we are in week 10 of a series called King Jesus, and if you have been here with us this year, we have been working through the Gospel of Mark, and so this is our third series from the Gospel of Mark, and our very first series we began back in January, and every one of these series has been driven by a question that I believe Mark is wanting us to ask throughout that portion of his gospel. And so the very first series was working our way through chapters 1 through 8, and we dealt with this question, who is Jesus? And then we get to the point where Peter makes this confession that you are the Messiah. And so in the second series called Messiah, we ask this question, what are the implications of our confession, you are Messiah? Which brings us to this series called King Jesus, as we work through chapters 11 through 16, asking this question, how does Jesus become king? And I want to kind of go back and look at those questions for a second, because we are arriving at the end of Mark's gospel. We are, we are at the point where Jesus has been on trial, and this morning we come to the crucifixion, and we have this week and next week in Mark. And my hope is you have really gotten a lot in this study, in this series, or these three series, um, in a glimpse as to who Jesus is. And so this morning I want to begin with reading from Mark. And I want to encourage you just to set your Bible aside or turn off your phone. I'm not going to put it on screen. I just want you to listen to this story told. And the reason I want you to listen is because this is a story for most of us that is extremely familiar, in that you have heard the account Mark tells, whether from Mark's perspective or John's or Matthew or Luke, many times. And as we become more and more familiar with stories, we forget to stop and actually listen to the words. So instead of reading along, I want to just ask you to close your eyes and just listen to the story that Mark tells. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the open country. They forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple, and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. 
In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, and put it on its staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud voice, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women had come up to Jerusalem for there also. Father, this morning, as we listen to this story, and as we hear your words, Father, it is our prayer that you would meet us here, that you would speak boldly and powerfully into our lives. Father, this morning we could encounter the risen Jesus. We pray this in his name. The primary purpose Jesus has come to earth is this very moment here. The primary reason Jesus comes to the earth is to arrive at this moment on the cross. And two weeks ago, we asked a really, really important question. What do you do when life gives you something you cannot control or you did not choose and that you cannot control? We looked at the story of Peter, who there in the moment faced with this decision with things beyond his choice, beyond his control, he chooses to abandon the will and the way of the Father. But here in this moment, Jesus embraces the will and the way of the Father and everything that will come with it. Our, our tendency is to go into self-preservation mode, to want to find a way out, to not have to go through the difficulty to not have to go through the hardships. And Peter does that. 
But Jesus steps into this moment, walking this road to the cross, and embraces it. And so many times, we'll talk about how our life is to be like Jesus. We take up our cross and we follow him, but if we're honest, far more often our life looks more like Peter's than it does Jesus. Seeking self-preservation, bending under the pressure of fear, afraid to walk the road to the cross. As were every other disciple, apostle, Jesus. Jesus embraces the shame and the agony of the cross because it was the primary purpose And from the cross, we hear these powerful, powerful words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? If you remember back to Jesus' baptism, the voice of God speaks over Jesus' identity. This is my son, I love him, I am pleased with him. In the transfiguration, the voice of God speaks over the identity of Jesus. This is my son. I love him. Listen to him. And now on the cross, the voice of God is silent. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a reference back to a messianic psalm, Psalm 22, that talks about what will happen when Israel's Savior and King and Messiah comes. I want you to listen to these words as he begins in 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In your ancestors, in you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Jesus quotes this messianic psalm that talks about how God seems distant in the time that he needs him the most. When God needs to be there, when God needs to save and needs to rescue and needs to redeem, Jesus says, God, where are which probably identifies with so many of us. How we have experienced times of anguish and hurt and heartache, and it seemed like God was silent. We cried out, God, save us. God, rescue us. God, redeem us. And all we hear is silence. 
so many times our assumption is silence is a sign God is not there. What if the silence greatest sign What if his silence, him holding your hand, walking in front, inviting you to trust him more, saying, I know this doesn't make sense. I know the cross is not the way you imagined this would play out. There has to be another Yet, through Jesus Christ, His pleas to take this cup from Him, God's silence speaks most profoundly of His presence. Jesus embraces this road that God has asked Him to walk. Maybe in your life, it is the silence of the times you need him the most speaks most powerfully to his presence. See, as Jesus cries out from the cross, God, where are you? Our tendency is to say, wait, who is this? If this was God's Son, this is what all the people hurling insults said. If this is God's Son, things should be different. Who is Jesus? And then we remember the story of God. The story that He has been telling from the beginning. The story of a garden and his creation that he loved that chose other things from a relationship with him. And yet God continued to pursue that creation passionately loving them. And then he said, I'm going to make you this nation that is set apart, this holy people that belong to me. You're my possession. And they began to follow and he gave them a special vocation that they would be the people that represented him to the rest of this world and that they would bless all the other nations. And yet time and time again, they lost sight of that. And God built for them a tabernacle, a temple, a place for them to dwell and be with him a place that would represent his light to the nations. And yet time and time again, they lost sight of who they were. And so God sent these prophets to call them back, to return to him, to repent, to return to the ways of God. And yet time and time again, they refused to listen. See, Jesus told a parable just several chapters earlier about a landowner 
And this landowner had this crop. And he was going away, and so he hired some servants to take care of it. And then he left. And he sent some servants back to reap the harvest. And they send one back, and these wicked servants kill one. And they send another one, and they beat him. And the story goes on and on where they kill and they beat these servants sent by the owner of the vineyard. Until you arrive at this conclusion. Where the owner of the vineyard says, now I will send my son. Surely they will respect him. And yet instead, they kill the son. And throw him out in the vineyard. Jesus tells Israel's story to the religious leaders who think they have it all together. That is really a story about his death. Him arriving at this moment on the cross. It speaks to his identity as Israel's Savior and Messiah and King. And the notice placed above him on the cross is in mockery. But it is the truth that this is the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. And it says in verse 38, chapter 15, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. See, the curtain of the temple was what divided the holy place from the holy of holies. And the holy of holies was the place that God dwelt. It was a place that normal people were not invited into because they could not be in the presence of God. And this, this temple curtain is torn, is ripped into, just as the heavens were torn open at Jesus' baptism. And now, the presence and the glory of God doesn't just fill a space, but now it fills the whole earth. See, Jesus had cursed this system. And this was just simply a sign that this system is no longer necessary. The system is obsolete because now I will come and dwell with my people. I will fill the earth with my glory because the earth is now my temple. My people are my temple. And I will live with them and among them. The, the temple curtain is ripped open revealing who God is. Do you remember the Wizard of Oz? There was another revealing in that movie. A man behind the curtain. Watch this. I believe my eyes. Why have you come back? Please, sir. We've done what you told us. We brought you the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. We melted her. Oh, you liquidated her, eh? Very resourceful. Yes, sir. 
So we'd like you to keep your promise to him, if you're pleased to. Not so fast. Not so fast. I'll have to give the matter a little thought. Go away and come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? Oh, but I want to go home now. You've had plenty of time already. Yeah. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said come back tomorrow. If you are really great and powerful, you'll keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures, think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh. The great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I yes. don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. You humbug! Yeah. Yes, it's exactly so. I'm a humbug. Oh, you're a very bad man. Oh, no, my dear. I, I'm a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. The curtain pulled back reveals fraud. Reveals that this is all smoke and mirrors. Reveals that there was no power. But when the curtain of the temple is torn in two, it reveals an all-powerful, all-loving God who has been passionately pursuing His creation. Inviting them into the story. The story that will culminate with Jesus on a cross. As He invites you and I to join him in that story. And we ask the question, who is Jesus? We, we've been asking all the way through Mark, and the only person so far who has answered, and seemingly half-heartedly, is Peter. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. We know that. We think we know that. Until times get really difficult. And for the first time in Mark's gospel, we're going to get a precise answer. Verse 39, when the centurion, a Roman soldier, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. It was this very profound moment when Jesus has breathed his last breath. And the crucifixion is over. Evil has done its worst. Darkness has covered the land. 
And a Roman centurion says this. This was God's son. It's not one of the apostles. It's not one of the disciples. It's a bystander. A Roman soldier watching the story unfold who speaks to Jesus' identity. It is not the voice of God. It is a Roman soldier. This surely is God's Son. And on Friday, darkness covers the world. But on Sunday, the Word of God is going to speak into the darkness and a new creation will begin. The Word of God will speak into the darkness and a new creation will begin. So how is it that Jesus becomes king? How does he become? He stands toe to toe with death. And walks away victorious. From his triumphal entry to his crown of mockery and his cross-shaped throne, God pursues his people into the grave so that he can lift them out of it. Shouting into the darkness, where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh death, is your victory? Praise be to God for Christ Jesus who has given us the victory. Jesus enters into death. He fills death with Himself so that in death all we find is Christ. So what are the implications of that confession? That Jesus is Messiah. That Jesus is God's Son. That Jesus is Lord. The implications are an invitation. An invitation to come and die. And the crazy thing about this story is that we find life in death. And it does not make sense to the rest of the world. They do not understand how it is through death that we could find life but it is one of the oldest Christian confessions. Paul says it this way, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live, I live in the body by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this story is our story. It is our identity that we are people who follow a crucified Jesus. Who follow a Savior who has died on a cross. How does God, how does Jesus become king?
stands toe-to-toe with death. And he walks away victorious. Maybe one of the most powerful ways the story is depicted is in the book of Revelation. And if you're not real familiar with the book or if the book scares you a little bit, a couple of things to understand. It is written in the style of a Greco-Roman play. It it is to be read almost as a theatrical production. And there is drama and tragedy and comedy and chorus, and everything in the book is symbolic. But the drama really picks up in chapters 4 and 5 of what's unfolding. And in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to help me out and actually be a part of this drama. So when we get to your part, we're going to have some words on the screen that are going to be in yellow. And you're going to read those with me, loudly. Okay? Because these words are words of worship and celebration, and so you're going to read them as worship. So as I said, this is a theatrical reading. So I want you to imagine this scene where the lights are completely out. And it's dark. And at the center of the stage, there is a throne with one sitting on the throne. And the lights come up, focused just simply on the center of the stage. And then the lights pan out just a little bit. And there you find these four living creatures that John describes, worshiping and praising the one who sits on the throne. And the lights pan out a little bit more, and there are 24 elders surrounding the throne. They're all bowing down and worshiping the one who sits on the throne. And there is an angel who is basically taking John on this tour. As he says, he's caught up with the Spirit. And John is watching this scene, and the one sitting on the throne is holding a scroll. But no one knows what the scroll says. So I'm going to hit pause in the drama for just a minute. And I'm going to play spoiler. Several chapters later in chapter 11, we're going to find out what is written on the, on the scroll. It says this, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He will reign forever. And it's written on this scroll, sealed. And as John looks around heaven, the angel is looking for someone who is worthy to open the scroll to read this proclamation. And it says no one can be found. John begins to weep bitterly. And then one of the elders says, wait! Look! The lion 
of the tribe of Judah. John turns. And he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. And its throat is slit. And the lamb looks like it should be dead. But it's alive. Then the lights pan out a little more. And there is a whole host of angels who are surrounding this throne. And they are worshiping God. They are celebrating. And they say, and this is going to be your part in just a second. Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And the lights pan out a little more. And now every creature in all of creation from every nation and tribe and tongue are worshiping the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb going on. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. The elders fell down worshiped. This is John's depiction of Jesus becoming king. And the cross is the moment, the blameless one, the righteous one, stands toe-to-toe with death. And is vindicated by God. And will be resurrected as This very moment, this lamb who looks like it's been slain, the rightful king, will take his place on the throne. This has profound implications for you and I. One, we are a people formed by the cross. We we are people who find our identity in the cross, who find our life in a cross, who find life out of death. We are people who are following the Lamb into a new creation. And next week we're going to get there. 
Because Jesus does not stay in the grave. He does not stay in the tomb. And then three, crucified Christ becomes the living Christ. Hope. And as I said, he invites us to follow him into his new creation. Let me leave you with these words. We prepare our minds and our hearts to gather around a table. A table whose centerpiece is a lamp looks like it's dead, but yet somehow still alive. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah. He will reign forever, ever.